Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church Podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. Well, good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at Mercy Hill. It's great to see you this morning. Uh, Those of you in person who I can see, welcome. Uh, Those of you who are joining us online, welcome to you as well. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Galatians chapter 5. We're continuing our series through the book of Galatians, just a couple more weeks. Uh, And some of you guys, maybe you're sad we're going to end Galatians in a few weeks. Some of you are like, no, it's about time. Let's move on to whatever is next. The topic this morning we're going to find in Galatians chapter 5 is what is known as the fruit of the Spirit. I feel like I have to give you a little bit of a disclaimer before we dive in uh, because we live in a Christian consumeristic culture uh, that makes every teaching of the Bible that seems like it can be sentimental, sentimental. And so perhaps when you've engaged with this topic of the fruit of the Spirit, uh, what immediately comes to mind uh, is some very cute sort of drawing with a variety of fruit on a beautiful tree, and it's sold at the Christian bookstore, and you want to get it as a reminder of the beauty of the fruit of the Spirit, which is all well and good. The disclaimer is I think I need to remind you of last week where the verses preceding this description of the fruit of the Spirit describe not sentimentality, but instead describe, if you remember, a conflict. A conflict in between our sinful desires and this new gift of the Spirit that God's deposited into the life of believers. And so we started last week with this idea that we all are in some way living as conflicted people. Now, I don't mean conflicted like I was yesterday afternoon, watching the University of Tennessee beat Alabama. Some people excited about that? So when I was a student at the University of Georgia, uh, we had not beaten the University of Tennessee in over a decade. And so I have a deep hatred for Tennessee because of that. I was there when we broke that streak and all the students stormed the field and tore down the goalposts. It was one of the greatest days of my life. And yet, um, who likes Alabama? (laughs) Right? So it was like, do I take this rival inside my division and cheer for them instead of the most hated team in the United States? What do we do? So I don't mean conflicted in that way. What I mean is what Paul says in the passage that we read, that we now as believers have a desire to please God, a desire, a longing for the things of God, but we have this remnant of our old selves that continually pull us back into doing what we don't want to do. That's the sort of conflict that is the setting for this passage. So let's jump in. Galatians chapter 5, we'll read again in verse 16. Let's pray this together as we turn our attention to the scripture. Father, by your spirit in these moments, could you make known the truth of your word to us? Amen. Verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want. 
But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So we talked about last week, this conflict inside of us, spirit versus flesh. The idea of flesh is our sinful nature. And then he's going to elaborate or expound. What do these two things look like? What does the flesh look like? What does the spirit look like? Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If, he says in verse 25, we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. So when he starts to expound on the differences between the flesh, our sinful nature, and the spirit, the work of God, first thing he says in verse 9 is, now the works of the flesh are evident. That phrase, works of the flesh, what he means is what the flesh or what our sinful nature produces. We can think of it this way. The sinful nature works itself out in these ways. So we have inside of us a disposition toward sin an inward desire for ourselves to be at the center of the world. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. When sin first enters the world, what do we see? What's the picture? That Adam and Eve, the first people, believe that God is withholding something good for them, so they chase down what they want for themselves. And this same disposition is inside every single one of us, And this disposition or this inward desire to put ourselves first, Paul says, creates something or produces something. It leads somewhere. This is not unlike what Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 15. And they're questioning him about a parable that he told to some Pharisees that created conflict. Now, you remember, the Pharisees are all about outward behavior, right? They want everybody to be in line with their outward behavior, What Jesus points out is they neglect their hearts. So verse 18 of Matthew 15, Jesus says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this is what defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These, he says, are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. What what is Jesus' point here? He's saying it's not the rituals like we've seen in the book of Galatians or outwardly what we participate in that defiles us. The problem is our hearts. The, The very center of who we are is still bent towards selfishness and that selfishness produces all of the things that we see outwardly as sin. This is Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mount. When he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, outward action. 
says, but what? But if you have lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. That we have a heart problem. And it is out of these broken, sinful, inwardly focused hearts that that's what drives the rest of our behavior in our lives. Or we could just say it simply this way. Our heart drives our behavior. Our heart drives our behavior. And so a heart that's set on ourselves produces all sorts of sinful actions. So what Jesus says, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, it all comes from where? The heart. Make sense today? This is just a different way of saying what we've already seen all the way through the book of Galatians, right? What have we seen in the book of Galatians? The problem isn't God's law. The problem is our own inability to obey God's law. That's the problem. And why are we incapable, not able to obey God's law? Because of the condition of our heart. And he says this sinful nature or sinfulness at the heart of who we are produces something. And what it produces, Paul says, is evident. Meaning, you don't need me to outline these things for you. I wonder if he would have to rephrase this verse in 2022. Saying, you know what they are. Even people who don't know God's law know what the sinful nature of people produces. This is what human nature, apart from the work of God's spirit, what it chases after or what it pursues. And it's evident. We see it everywhere. The brokenness all around us. And then he gives us a list. Now, I know it's super popular in our current cultural moment to elevate Jesus by dogging Paul. But here's what I want you to notice when we go through the list. It's not remarkably different from what Jesus said in Matthew 15, right? Paul's teaching what Jesus taught. And here's what he says. Three big categories that we find, verses 19, 20, and 21. First, he addresses sexual sin, desires inside of ourselves to pursue pleasure through sex outside of the means that God designed for us to do so. He uses three words. Sexual immorality, which is just a catch-all in the New Testament for all sexual sin. It would include any sexual activity outside of a biblically defined marriage. That would include pornography. It would include sex with someone that you met that you're not married to. It would include then to the very extremes of incest and bestiality. All that would be included under this term. He uses the word impurity which just means impure motives or our thought lives. And so he's diving into what we think about sexually and then sensuality. And the idea here is a complete lack of restraint or unbridled passion. And his point is this. Remember, sinful hearts produce these sorts of things where we are trading God's design for lifelong monogamy in sex for instead a sex life of volume, self-interest, and momentary enjoyment. That, he says, is not a fruit of the Spirit. Where does he park that? Outworking of the sinful nature. Then the second category he gives us is one around worship. So not just the way that we think and engage in sex, but the way that we think and engage with God. He uses two phrases here. The first one is idolatry, which just simply means worshiping other gods, or perhaps 
because we don't live in a culture that's given to raising up carven images. We can think about it like this. When we exalt good things that God has given us over God himself, and then he uses the word sorcery, and you're thinking like, oh, this is Harry Potter, right? Really, the idea here is attempting to manipulate circumstances by using the spiritual world. And so God is simply saying, manipulating your circumstances by engaging with the spiritual world is not his design for people. And the big point in this category is trading the worship of the one true God who created us in his image to worship a God crafted in our own image is an outworking or what is produced by our sinful hearts. So your problem isn't just that you love money more than God. Your problem is at the heart of who you are, you just don't love or desire the things of God. Our problem isn't that we want to manipulate our circumstances through gathering crystals or rocks or Ouija boards or whatever else. The problem at the heart is that we believe we deserve to have our circumstances manipulated in the first place. We're at the center. And then it gives us this third category, which are around community, how we see others. Enmity, that's hatred or hostility. Strife, contention, jealousy, that we're never satisfied, always desiring what somebody else has. Fits of anger, that we fly off the handle in outbursts. Rivalries, dissensions, and divisions all point to selfish ambition, which inside of us causes fractions and fractures that leads to divided homes and divided countries and divided churches. Envy, a resentment inside of us over what someone else has given. Drunkenness and orgies, which are probably meant to go together here, which means that we love to party for belonging a cheap substitute for the richness of real community and real relationships, and that we are using and abusing other people for our own pleasure or our own gain. Do, do you see how this is very, very different from whether or not you have a beer? This dives to the very heart of who we are asking the question, why am I having a beer? Why am I angry? And so from our very hearts, these things come out of us. And then he gives a warning, a very sober warning. He says, I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, when you see these things, you are not seeing the result of God's spirit at work in people's hearts. You are seeing the result of sinful nature running rampant in someone's heart. That these are the very outworkings of what is produced not by God, but by humans who love themselves a lot. Now that phrase, who do such things, can be translated or I think understood better as making a practice of doing those things. So the scripture never has this idea that after we become Christians, we're perfect. If that was the case, the context here wouldn't make sense. What did Paul just say? 
You're not perfect and you know you're not perfect because even though God has changed your desires, you still feel like you're being pulled back into your sinful nature. So that can't be the idea. Instead, the warning is for people whose lives are consistently marked by these characteristics and who are not fighting, repenting, apologizing, or realizing that what they're doing is wrong. So this isn't a warning for people who are repentant, who have an outburst of anger at home when no one's listening, right? Dad goes a little off the handle and then immediately says, that was wrong. I'm sorry. It works to do better. Instead, this warning is for the dad who continually has outbursts of anger, doesn't know, doesn't care, and isn't going to change it. And then that is a very real warning. And he says, you're not going to inherit the kingdom. Well, this is just the logical conclusion of the entire argument we've seen over the past couple chapters in Galatians. That these actions reflect someone who does not have the spirit of God living inside of them. And if they don't have the spirit, that's because they're not in the family. And if they're not in the family, they're not getting the inheritance. Does that make sense? So the argument here isn't, if you do these things, you're getting kicked out of the family. The argument is, if you do these things, you might not have ever been in the family to begin with. But there's good news. Verse 22, he says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. He said, conversely, for those who know God, who've been adopted into God's family, who've believed and trusted in Christ, who've received the promised Holy Spirit into their own lives, that the Spirit is at work in our hearts to produce something different. That while our sinful nature is at work to produce all of these terrible things that we've seen, there's something else at work. And the Spirit's work happens at the very place where the problem originates, the heart. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, at our house, we had a pinhole leak. If you live in Cobb County, your house was built in the mid to late 90s. This is a rampant problem. So the copper piping that was used evidently wasn't up to standard. And so a lot of us have terrible copper pipes in our house. And so we had a leak. And so, you know, I, we had to you know, call the insurance company and the restoration company, and I cut a hole in the ceiling, and I went to Home Depot, and I got one of those little, like, kind of shark bite clamps and put over the leak to stop it from leaking, and then they came, and they dried out everything, and, you know, we had to call a plumber, the whole thing. Now, how crazy would it have been if instead my course of action had been to cut out the drywall, pull up the floor, but not fix the leak? And then I replaced the drywall, repainted the walls, and replaced the floor. What would happen? I would just ruin new drywall, new paint, and new floor. You have to fix the problem. And the drywall being wet, the paint coming off the walls, and the floor warping are only symptoms of the problem. 
And so the work of the Spirit goes after the heart, is going to fix the actual problem inside of you. And then the symptoms start to work themselves out. We've talked about this before, but this is what was promised in Ezekiel chapter 36. God said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. What's God going to do, Ezekiel is promising, and what has he done by sending the spirit? Giving you a new heart and a new spirit so that you are now capable of obeying God's law. Fear's not gonna work. Threats of punishment don't work. God's saying what you need is a new heart. That's how we fix the leak. And so what does the spirit produce? We says fruit. This fruit is a metaphor. Sometimes we forget that these pictures are metaphorical in the scripture and we start to use them like they're literal, but it's a metaphor. It's a picture. It's a picture painted in Psalm chapter one of a good tree with deep roots that gets plenty of water and minerals and sunshine and that good tree produces good fruit. He's saying, likewise, a heart that has been transformed by God's spirit produces certain types of things. Good fruit, well, what sort of fruit is that? Well, in particular, it's love, a genuine affection for others. The care of the good of other people is joy, that the work of the spirit creates people who are marked by delight not affected by them circumstances, their circumstances, but rooted in knowing God. Not, as Luther says, committed to dreary doctrine and begrudging duty. Peace. That the work of the Spirit in us bears the fruit of not giving in to anxiety and fear, but having confidence in the wisdom of God. Patience. That God's Spirit allows us to be the people who can bear in adversity, hang in there in difficult circumstances, put up with the reproach of others without blowing up or lashing out. We become patient, kindness. That we become the sort of people who are so secure in our own selves and our standing before God that we can authentically put other people first. Goodness. They were marked by an uprightness of heart, a life that is unchanged by changing circumstances. Faithfulness, we're reliable and true to our word. We have the courage to do what is right. Gentleness, we're not sharp or bitter because we're not self-absorbed enough to need to be bitter anymore. And self-control. There were a people who put what is important over what's urgent. We're not impulsive. Did you notice anything striking about this list? I just noticed two things. One, who doesn't want to be like this? And two, it's all character traits. In other words, the work of the Spirit is at work in your lives to make you into someone. This is about who you are more than it is about what we do. The work of the Spirit is heart work. 
which is primarily focused on our character, not our circumstances. I want to say this again. The work of the Spirit is heart work, which is primarily focused on our character, not our circumstances. That the Spirit is focused on who we are at the very heart of ourselves and over time changes our character. We often want God's sole purpose to be changing our circumstances. And so we pray and pray and pray that God would change what's happening around us, but the work of the Spirit is primarily changing what is inside of us, who we are. A.H. Strong gives an example of a steamship. The steamship's been out to sea, but its machinery has been broken. And so they haul it back into port. And in port, it is safe, but it's not sound. What's required for the steamship to do what the steamship was designed to do is to be repaired in port so that it could be both safe and sound and then sent back out to sea. And here's what he says, justification when Christ saves us is our safety, bringing us home into port. We find belonging and a new life. But sanctification or this work of the spirit that we're talking about makes us sound, able to endure the wind and the waves. Do you get the implication? That means God's spirit is most often at work to change who you are, not what's happening around you. So if God doesn't deliver you from the wind and the waves, that doesn't mean that he's not at work. If you're walking through difficult circumstances, that doesn't mean God isn't at work. Because the primary work of the Holy Spirit is heart work. Developing people of character who are resilient and who can endure whatever circumstances are coming our way. God is not interested in leaving you only safe in the port. He sends you out by his spirit in soundness. This is one of my very many issues with the prosperity gospel. Which promises if you just have enough faith, then God's going to come through with what you really want. And so if you, by faith, give your money to the church, then God's going to give it back to you tenfold. Or if you just pray the right prayer, then God's going to allow sickness to always leave your body. That God's main aim is for your temporal prosperity. And that view is focused on circumstances above character. The Holy Spirit just becomes a force that exists to change my circumstances. If I'm sick, the Holy Spirit's going to swoop me in and deliver me from sickness. If I'm lacking finances, the Holy Spirit's going to swoop in and give me my brand new wealth mentality. This is sorcery disguised as Christianity. It's magic. I can manipulate God to get what I really want. But that's not what we see in the scripture. That's not how the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit is using your circumstances as a tool to conform your heart to reality. Holy Spirit is making us, this fruit of the Spirit, people of character so that we are not shaken by sickness, death, loss, or poverty but giving us the resiliency to persevere through all of those things and to do so with 
Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And Paul says, against these things, there is no law. What does he mean? Well, the more our character starts to look like the character of Jesus, the less we need the law to restrain us. This is the beauty of what God is doing in your life. Your character, not the fear or threat of punishment, is what empowers you to walk in obedience. And when your character starts to look like this list, the fruit of the Spirit, then you don't need the law. You don't need the threat of consequences. You don't need the promises of blessing. You've become the sort of person that longs to obey God. An honest man doesn't need the the law to tell him not to steal. A faithful man doesn't need the law to tell him to not commit adultery. It's not the threat of punishment. It's the character of the person. And this is what God desires. Not a people who obey at a threat of punishment or out of fear, not a people who obey from the promise of a reward, you will be blessed. The Spirit is at work to make us a people of character who obey God because that's who we are. This doesn't mean there's not a punishment for breaking the law. It doesn't mean that there aren't rewards for obeying the law. It means that we're motivated by changed hearts instead of those things. This is why your circumstances aren't the best gauge for where you stand with God. The fruit of the Spirit is born out of all sorts of circumstances. How do we learn patience? The Spirit at work in our hearts during trying circumstances. Why would we even need this fruit of the Spirit, patience, if the Spirit just gave us everything that we wanted to begin with? It'd be a total lack of patience. We learn how uh, to love like Jesus by having to love people the way that Jesus loves, which means we will have enemies. How do you learn how to love your enemy if you don't have any? We have to learn self-control by experiencing the temptation to lose control. Let me say this a different way. Maybe I can make it more clear right here at the end of this section. The Holy Spirit is not a magic fairy sprinkling dust on you for whatever your needs are. The Holy Spirit is more like a wise teacher or guide, creating us into a people of character. Now, there's good news. If you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. The work of the Holy Spirit is heart work, and heart work takes time. You can't microwave character development. Let me ask you a question. When you look at the list of things that are produced by the works of the flesh and you see yourself in the list somewhere, all of us see ourselves in that list somewhere, me included, here's the question. How long did it take you to get there? How long have you been a person of jealousy or envy, of dissension or strife? How long have you been dealing with outbursts of anger? A long time. So guess what? It often takes a long time to get that stuff out of our hearts. 
For some of us, there are some things that are immediate changes. Absolutely. Praise God for it. For some of us, we are dealing with the same pool of sinful nature and temptation that we were five years ago, for some 10 years ago, for some 20. Remember, the mark isn't that you don't struggle with any of those things. The mark is, am I repenting of those things? And that takes time. About 10 years ago, I met a friend. His name's Cody. Uh, He is as country as it gets. He's delightful and hysterical and funny and has a very unique job. He was hired by some guys in middle Georgia to manage a pecan farm, but the pecan farm didn't exist yet. And so his job literally was to build an organic pecan farm from the ground up. So he and I would get together for lunch. I'm like, how's it going, man? When are you going to have some pecans? He's like, probably in about six or seven years. And I was like, what? Did you know this? Pecan trees take five to seven years before they even start producing pecans. And then he told me, and I was flabbergasted, it's probably another seven years before they're having full harvest from those trees. And I was like, wait, wait, you're starting a pecan farm from scratch and you're not going to make money for 14 years? He's like, yeah, that's it. That's exactly right. It's the way it works. But that is the fruit of the Spirit. That's the way this works. It's more like a pecan farm than it is microwaving dinner. That it takes time. Lots of sunshine, lots of water, lots of pruning, and lots of time. And then God starts to change our very hearts. Now, I want to ask a question. What would happen in your life if the fruit of the Spirit was evident? What would happen? Let me ask it a different way. What would happen in our church if the transforming power of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts was producing the fruit of the Spirit here? Todd Wilson says this, Love ought to mark the church as well. The church ought to be filled with the fruit of the Spirit. We ought to be, I love this, like a garden, the garden of God, embodying the presence of the Spirit, recapturing the love that was present originally in the Garden of Eden. This garden church ought to be filled with fruit, new creation fruit, born of the Spirit within the lives of his people. Thus, listen, the church ought to be an oasis in the midst of a barren wasteland, a place of nourishment and rest and healing and life smack dab in the middle of this present evil age. Isn't that beautiful? That God designed us together to individually be be being transformed by the Spirit, and together to create, instead of single trees bearing fruit, an orchard or an oasis or a garden, a beautiful counterculture where we look very, very different from the way everybody else is operating. If we look more like our culture in attitude and action, then we're not an oasis We're a barren landscape. Can you imagine the invitation? 
come, friends, to escape the dry and weariness of this barren land. And when they get here, they watch us bite and devour and ignore each other, watch us lose our tempers, watch us blame other people for our problems and treat other people with contempt. Praise Jesus. How on earth could we be the people of God and be full of dissension, envy, anger, and strife? How could we be a desert, an oasis in the desert, a garden for people when we're too busy trying to emulate the desert around us? Before everybody gets on your hobby horse, this is right and left, progressive and conservative, all right? We can't love, and I would say we don't love our neighbors when we feed and excuse their excessive sexual appetites and their unquenchable thirst for cheap community based on cheap thrills. It is like telling my kids it's totally cool to eat fruity pebbles and Coke doused in there for every single meal. Why should I care about preventing diabetes or obesity or heart disease in the future when I can receive their praise in the moment? It's not loving. It's a death sentence. Actually, let me correct myself. It is loving. It's loving my own reputation and what people think about me way too much. Likewise, we can't love our neighbors with dissension, anger, and jealousy it's like me telling my kids uh, that I love them while I'm screaming profanities at them for not cleaning their room. I love you. This is why I'm about to say this. We cannot make disciples of Jesus in the same manner that Fox News does business. We can't. There's no fruit of the Spirit there. And we can't make disciples of Jesus doing whatever the culture says is good or appropriate in any given moment. We can't. Just pushing people off the edge. Instead, we have to be a church that wholly embodies the work of the Spirit at our very hearts. We have to be marked by love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And friends, against those things, there is no law. That's who we're supposed to be together. Lastly, verse 24, he says this. This is the very end. Okay, hang in here with me. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. How do I do this on a daily basis? How do I walk in the Spirit? How do I experience the fruit of the Spirit? How am I transformed at the heart? Here's what Paul says. I daily remind myself of the reality of who I am. That I came to know Jesus. That Jesus is Lord. That Jesus paid the price in full for my sin. That through Jesus, I've been brought into the very family of God. That in Jesus, I'm an heir. I'm getting everything that God promised me. This is the entire book of Galatians up to now. And so what I do is I remind myself every day, that's not me anymore. This is me. I belong to Christ. And I crucify or I lay down or I put to death the things that used to pull me into sin. 
and I do it every day. So the daily habit of a Christian becomes, Father, today, I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. Today is a conflict and a war where I feel the pull to gratify the simple nature inside of my heart. But Father, I know you have saved me for so much more than that. So today, could I lay down those desires? Today, could you help me, empower me to live like I belong to the family? And we pray it every single day. Daily laying down passions and desires. So today, if you are tired of a life of contention and strife, envy, jealousy, sexual pursuits that don't satisfy, cheap community, there's really good news. God doesn't want to just take those things away from you. God wants to give you a new heart. And he does that for those who just trust, believe, or have faith in Jesus. So today I would just say, would you come to know Christ? Begin to experience this transformation from the inside out. For those of us who are already believers, we are in a daily conflict. We are fighting to walk in the spirit not gratify the desires of the flesh. And I would encourage you, begin this practice of praying consistently that the Spirit would empower you the very heart of who you are. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.